In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the most magnificent hymns there is, a Lenten hymn, and one of my favorites is uh, one that we sing every year on Palm Sunday, kind of my tradition, I guess. O dearest Jesus, what law hast thou broken? It has 15 stanzas, but it's not that long of a hymn. They're rather brief. The first seven reflect upon what is known as the great exchange. How Jesus, who is holy and righteous, suffered and died for us poor sinners who are unholy and unrighteous. So that what we deserve, he endures. And what he deserves, we inherit. It is a marvel worth singing about. The second seven stanzas deal with what we do and promise to do in response. And then finally, the last stanza praises God for his salvation by grace alone. This beautiful hymn came to my mind while studying the gospel lesson appointed for this second to last Sunday of the church year. And I'll quote it a couple times here and there as we apply it to this Sunday's theme. The last judgment of the Son of Man. O dearest Jesus, what law hast thou broken that such sharp sentence should on thee be spoken? The hymn opens up with a rhetorical question. Of course, Jesus has broken no law. He is sinless. He is perfectly obedient. He is righteous and holy and without blemish. He is the only such man ever to live. He is true God who became true man in order to do what man was unwilling and unable to do. It's put very well in what we sing from another wonderful hymn every Easter Sunday. No son of man could conquer death. Notice that son of man. Such ruin sin had wrought us. No innocence was found on earth and therefore death had brought us into bondage from of old, and ever grew more strong and bold, and held us as its captive. God became man to save man. Christ Jesus, God's own Son, came down, his people to deliver, destroying sin. He took the crown from death's pale brow forever, stripped of power, no more it reigns, an empty form alone remains. Its sting is lost forever. Alleluia. Jesus did what no son of man could do. That's the whole point. And it's the point of the title he gives himself on the last day. The Son of God became the Son of Man to save us. Who to serve thine own creation didst partake of flesh and blood, as we'll sing in our closing hymn. He took part in our human nature. He came to live a perfectly pleasing life before God as true bone of our bone, as one accountable to God's holy law, just as we ourselves are. He came to give his life as a perfect sacrifice for us. This is how he frees us from sin, death, and judgment. From this, it is important to note that this is the reason we call Jesus the Son of Man. He became true man to save us, not to condemn us, as he himself promises in John chapter 3. His title as Son of Man is his title as the Savior of men, our substitute the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the promised seed of the woman. He is the sinless son of Adam. He is the word made flesh. 
by the word of God, that is, by the working of God's own son, Adam and Eve were created and thoughtfully formed and made to have fellowship with God. By disobeying the word of God, Adam and Eve rejected the image of God. They believed the devil's lie, you will be like God, when they were already created in his likeness. But they pursued a more glorious likeness. They sought more glory for themselves and so denied the glory of their maker. So what does God do? How does he reveal the true image of God in time? The image of God which he so willed to be reflected in flesh and blood men like you and me. How does he glorify his image? How does God reveal this image that Adam and Eve sold for death? Does God come to expose to their children how much glory this image always had? Does he come to reveal the magnificence of the lost image of God in order to give the children of man what we deserve? No, he came in the likeness of sinful man. He came in the flesh and blood that originally bore this image in order to restore it. He glorified his name by hiding his glory under the shame that we deserved. He came as our brother. He does not first come in glory. He comes first in abject humility in order to save man from his sin. Before he reveals glory, he reveals what the true image of God is. The image in which we were first created and the image to which we are by grace restored again by faith in Christ. It is the image of simple trust and obedience, an image of tender love and mercy. God became man to save man. Don't forget that. It is very important for us that when we hear the title Son of Man, we hear in this title the description of our substitute. He is the true man. He is the image of God himself, which Adam and Eve lost and which we were born without. He is perfectly obedient in love and service and chastity and patience and every other virtue. He is holy. God is man, man to deliver. His dear son now is one with our blood forever. As we sing in the Christmas hymn, we're getting all sorts of hymns today. Or as we sing in the hymn I first mentioned, the sinless son of God must die in sadness. The sinful child of man may live in gladness. Man forfeited his life and is acquitted. God is committed. That is, he's con convicted. He's punished for us. He takes our blame. This is the great exchange. The Son of God became the Son of Man in order to take our place under God's judgment. He did this in order to restore his image to us. By making peace by his blood, he teaches us again to trust God. We learn to trust God, not by beholding the Son of Man in glory, but by seeing him in lowliness, taking away the sin of all the children of mankind on the cross. Our eyes behold this salvation through a veil. That is, we behold his glory by way of mercy when his crucified and risen body and blood are given to us as a pledge of certainty for us to eat and to drink teaching us that it is truly so. Not only that Jesus died and rose, but that he remains your brother, flesh and blood. There is no God that any man can trust in other than the God who retains and keeps and glorifies his flesh and blood. But his glory is hidden. It is only known by faith. 
He hides it from scoffers and mockers in these last days. But our sins are truly forgiven. We believe it. We take him at his word when he promises new life and holy baptism. And when he gives us his body and blood for us to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. Because what other word will we believe? We are reconciled to God by pure grace and mercy. The suffering, death, and resurrection of God who became our brother proves this. He became nothing for us because our salvation was everything to him. It is such a marvel. It is such good news for us. All sin is paid for. All death is overcome. All anger and judgment from God is satisfied. And so in humble gratitude we ponder this mystery. As we also sing in the same hymn, What punishment so strange is suffered yonder? The shepherd dies for sheep that loved to wander. The master pays the debt his servants owe him. Who would not know him? And here we have another rhetorical question. Who would not know him? Well, his sheep know him. Sheep that loved to wander know him. Sheep that are gathered from their wandering and learn to gather instead around the good news of their salvation, they know him. You know him. Those who love the truth that I have up to now proclaimed to you, they know him. They are sheep of the good shepherd. They are known by him. Jesus says so. Our gospel lesson begins with Jesus keeping the promise on the last day. He knows his own. He will know you. When the Son of Man comes, he will gather all nations and separate those who knew him from those who wouldn't know him. His sheep he sets on his right hand and the goats he sets on the left. And it is remarkable how he will then distinguish between them. We know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. I suppose then that the reader of all hearts will then put those who had faith on one side, this is my right, and those who didn't have faith on the other. And certainly that is what he does. The terms of our salvation will not suddenly change. Do not be afraid of this. You are saved by grace alone through faith. And all is yours by faith. Your sins have already been forgotten, and you lay claim of this by faith. Be sure of it. The Son of Man knows who knows him. He knows who trusts in him. He knows you by faith. You who by faith have put your trust in him. He gave you this faith, as we sang, the faith which you yourself have wrought. He knows you. And he sustains this faith by speaking to you the words of mercy and forgiveness that you came here to listen to. This is how he keeps you in the faith. But on the last day, this is not how he will speak to you. On that day, you will need no forgiveness. Though you will praise forever the God who forgave you, You will no longer need the forgiveness that you need today. In the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. 
All your regret and weakness and every temptation will be gone forever and replaced with pure joy and untemptable, uncorruptible holiness and willingness, purity. Right now, you need words of mercy. You will live your whole life depending on it. You sin. You regret it. You sin daily. You trade God's image for some glory or pleasure or pride that suits you better. Every day, you think of yourself. You justify your anger at your spouse or your lust for another or your resentment of a brother or sister. And you are blind to your sin because you are thinking only of yourself. And then you learn to despair of yourself. Your anguish and the sorrow you cause others. It's your fault. You know the great mercy of God. And yet you deny this mercy every day. And so often, as often as you obey the sinful venom of deceit over the clear command of your Savior God, and you find that you have sinned and that your sin has hurt others, you repent. You need words of mercy. You need God, who became the son of Adam, the seed of the woman, the true son of man, to speak those words of mercy to you. And you live by his mercy. You find no life in yourself. You find your life in Christ, whom not able to see, yet you love, because he has loved you and never grows weary of forgiving you 70,000 times seven. Who would not know him? But you know him. And I suppose this is why it is so strange that since this is how you know him, hearing words like these, that when you finally see Jesus face to face and faith is removed with real sight, with pure eyes, that you'll see him face to face in person when you finally meet him and know him as he has known you, oh, what a happy day it will be. Yet then the words that you have heard from him up to that point will not be the words that he says to you today. No, because all things will finally be changed. It is almost like the great exchange I mentioned earlier will be reversed. Today we thank God for his great kindness in Christ, his son. But on the last day, his son will thank us. What a wonder. Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world when he first made man in his image and therefore dedicated himself to that flesh and blood. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. These are things that flesh and blood need. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. See how the Son of Man sympathizes with flesh and blood. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. Well, this is what got me thinking about that great hymn. Those second seven stanzas I mentioned help us to understand what's going on here. The first seven guide our meditation of the greatness of the exchange. That God takes our sin upon himself and gives us in place of all our sin, all of his holiness and righteousness, so that we, by faith in him, stand unafraid before his throne of judgment. 
This is our certain hope. But as we press toward this hope and ponder this great mystery of God, what do we see? What do we do, rather? We thank him. And words are a great way to do that. Words are necessary. Faith comes by hearing, and this faith is made known by speaking and singing and confessing. But it is also made known by what we do. We also show our faith by what we do for one another. And this is what Jesus takes so seriously. In that hymn, O dearest Jesus, see how we learn to respond to the great exchange. We sing, how shall I find some worthy gift to proffer? What dare I offer? We sing again, oh, how shall I do aught that could delight thee? Can I requite thee? We answer ourselves, yet unrequited, Lord, I would not leave thee. We sing, I'll think upon thy mercy without ceasing. We sing, whatever of earthly good this life may grant me, I'll risk for thee. No shame, no cross will daunt me. And finally, we sing as we rack our minds for what we can give in gratitude to God. But worthless is my sacrifice, I own it. Yet, Lord, for love's sake, thou wilt not disown it. Thou wilt accept my gift in thy great meekness, nor shame my weakness. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you know how worthless your gifts are to gain salvation and mercy. You know how worthless your efforts are to thank God as though in order to earn his favor. You know how worthless they are to make you pleasing to God. But brothers and sisters, they are not worthless. They are not worthless to me. They are not worthless to your brother in need. And they are not worthless to Jesus, who loves the least among you, who lives in the least among you, no less than he lives in you. And we are his brothers and sisters. He takes to heart every kindness shown to each of us in his name, even as he forgives us for every smart and piercing nail that our sins caused him. So how will you thank God for this great exchange in Christ? You cannot repay him, requite him, but you can conduct a great exchange with one another. Serve your neighbor. Above all, serve those who join you in the household of God, who share this love of mercy with you. They are weak, and so they will upset you and offend you and sin against you. And they might do it again. Bear with it, as Christ has borne with you. Forgive them, as Christ has forgiven you. Accept whatever meager olive branch they ever extend to you to be reconciled. Since God in Christ accepts all that you extend to him. He accepts whatever you dare offer. He accepts it as cleansed and made perfect by the blood of Christ that makes not only us acceptable to God, but it makes all that we do for him acceptable as well. And what do we do? And how do we do it for Jesus We do it for his brethren. We do it for those he loves and who love him. We who preach the gospel, 
We preach the gospel as clearly as we can. We who listen, listen as patiently as we can. We who can sing, sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. We who have strong shoulders bear the weight of one another. We who have children, teach them to show their love to God by showing love and respect to one another. We who are sinners come to church to be around other sinners in need. We who have money support what is most precious to all of us so that the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of our children might never cease. We who have honor, use our honor to cover the shame of those who confess their sins right next to you. He who does not shame our weakness teaches us not to shame one another's weakness. And he takes it to heart when we do. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. In the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Notice two things here from Psalm 116. First, our thanksgiving consists of asking for more, drinking more from the cup of mercy. Our thanksgiving consists of going to where our shepherd's voice is heard in all its truth and power. Second, we do so in the midst of Jerusalem, the Lord's people, his brothers and sisters. We gather to hear what God loves to tell us with those who love to hear it, who love what we love most. And so we love one another. We love those whom Jesus loves when we serve one another. And Jesus is happy, even grateful, when we do He remembers none of our sin, but he remembers us. He remembers what we do, even when our works of thanks are nothing compared to his work of redemption. But we must be thankful. And so he prepares for us the works that please him. He gives us one another. He who knows how we sin against him knows how we sin against one another. And he teaches above all to show our gratitude for what he has done by giving us one another to serve, to promote the preaching of the gospel, to seek reconciliation. He judges the heart. We don't. We can only see works. So here in time, we can only judge the outward works of those. And we do so always when we condemn sin, when we condemn a hardened heart that won't seek reconciliation with a brother or sister. We condemn those who refuse to come to church or hear the word of God. We condemn those not as reading the heart, but in order to warn them against the judgment of him who does. For he swears by himself that he desires none to be lost but to hear the voice of their shepherd. Hell was not created for flesh and blood. It was created for the devil and his angels. It was created for the spiritual forces of darkness that lead men into ingratitude for what Christ has done. Those who do not love Christ's brothers and sisters go to hell. They seek a greater glory than the glory Christ revealed in serving sinners. They seek themselves and they will be alone with themselves forever. Heaven was created for flesh and blood. It was created anew for us since God himself assumed our human nature. 
Human, heaven right now is being prepared for us who have the same flesh and blood as God. Our brother rules in heaven. He is the Son of Man. We know him as our Savior. We always will. We will be unafraid when he comes in judgment. For the least of Christ's brothers are those who suffer for the gospel, and so we willingly suffer in order to embrace this peace which we have with God, even if it means suffering with one another. The least of his brethren are the apostles and all servants of Christ who give their lives to the message of reconciliation, either by preaching it or by seeking it. Jesus gives the example. The example he gives is his own death that saves us. His shame is his glory, and it is ours, because by it he has purchased honor and eternal life for us, and he gives us to live in peace now and in everlasting joy when he comes again to bring us home. In Jesus' holy name, amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus unto everlasting life. Amen. Amen.